Hi, this is John Kavakis. I want to say thank you for giving us some of your time today. We really enjoy hearing from people who join us online. So if you have any questions, if you have any comments, in particular, if you have any prayer requests, we'd love to hear them. There'll be a variety of different ways that you can get in contact with us, and all that information will be ready right after the end of the sermon. So let's join our service today in progress. Our sermon is Why Repent out of Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Today's sermon, as I said earlier, is all about repentance. And David understood the necessity of repentance, and he writes about it in Psalm 7. This is Psalm 7, verses 8 through 13. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Please be seated. I'd like you to turn to Luke uh, chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you about my kids. Both of them got to a certain age in life where they found out that whatever I said, if they said why, they could keep me talking. And at first I thought, my, how inquisitive they are. And for a while I began to wonder whether or not it was just their way of keeping me talking. I couldn't imagine that it was that fascinating. But there would be the, why did this happen? And I'd go, this is why it happened. Well, why was that? Why, 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 why? And it's kind of, it's kind of ironic because I do think at a certain age, you begin to wonder why about things. And I don't know that that goes away at all. Uh, I, I think we all have our questions as to why. Why am I hurting? Uh, why am I in this situation? Why am I grieving right now? Uh, maybe even sometimes we ask ourselves why good things might happen. So we're going to talk about why today. Now, the last time we were together, we found out that we shouldn't wait, that time is of vital importance in our relationship with our Father, and that we should do what is necessary to, to reconcile with Him, to pay our debt to Him. He gave His only Son so that we can be cleansed of our sins, and that creates a debt to Him. So, uh, Time is of the essence, and, and that debt needs to be paid. Today, we're going to find out that repentance is required. Now, that's the truth that I want you to take home today, that repentance is required. And, but we're also going to explore why. Why is repentance required? And people ask this from time to time. God is a loving God. He's a forgiving God. Why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Why do we have to go through all of these machinations before him? Why do we have to, to obey these rules and so on and so forth? We're going to take a look at that. So our sermon title today is Why Repent? Now, we're going to look at this through 
two sets of measures that we see in these nine verses. And the first set is our measures, and we're going to see those in verses 1 through 5. And in verses 6 through 9, we will see God's measures. So let's take a look at our measures first. And we need to be careful to understand the context here. There is a progression of what's happening as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, and he runs into these confrontations with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the crowd, as he continues to teach his disciple. All of this is very ordered and very much, uh, we need to understand what's happening. So Jesus just said to the crowd, to his disciples, to the Pharisees, that he's coming back. And it could happen at any time. We talked a little bit about that because a lot of us have, have been taught that certain things have to happen. The temple needs to be rebuilt and the red heifer needs to be identified and all sorts of things like that. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus says he could come back at any time. We will probably have a greater understanding of how that works after he comes back than we do before he comes back. But he said he could come back. It could happen at any time. So the previous passage was, so settle your debt with God before all this happens. So he's still talking to the crowd around him, and that brings us to verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we, we don't know what the situation here is. There, there seems to be no historic record of this. But it's relatively typical of what was happening at that time, first century. I mean, it, they were part of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire didn't require a lot of its people. They kind of let these little pockets of, of Jews and Persians and so on and so forth worship the gods that they wanted to worship. But they also demanded allegiance to Caesar. And as the Roman Empire progressed and got larger, uh, they wanted effigies of Caesar. They wanted statues of Caesar. They wanted people to bow down before Caesar. So the Jews wouldn't do that. And they would rebel against that. And so there were frequent clashes between the Jews and the Romans who were in charge because the Romans wanted to get them in order, pay their taxes, and make sure they were part of the Roman Empire. And the Jews refused to worship anybody other than God. So... There were probably a group of people on their way to Jerusalem, probably on their way to observe Passover. Um, we know that because Passover was the only time that the laity could sacrifice the animals. Uh, and they probably encountered some Romans, and the Romans asked them to bow down or to recognize the statue or whatever, and the Jews didn't. And, and the result was a massacre. And so the way the, way the crowd describes it is the the blood of the sacrifices mixed with the blood of the Jewish people. Now, the crowd wants to know something. Now, they're talking current events here. So they want to know, what do you think, Jesus? You say, you say that the kingdom of God is going to be at any moment. Do you say that you're going to come back? They're probably trying to figure out how he can come back when he hasn't gone anywhere yet. Okay? So, so they want to know what he thinks of this, this thing in the news. It's on... It's on the web, it's on CNN, it's showing up on their phones. Everybody's talking about it. Did you hear what happened to the Jews that were massacred by the Romans? And so they, want, they want his input. And what they really want to know is, do you think those people were doing something wrong? 
Now, they're, they're probably divided. Maybe they should have been quiet. Maybe they should have offered more resistance. There might have been a lot of debate on this, but they, they, they want to know, were they doing something? Were they making trouble? What happened to them? And primarily what they want to know is, were they judged by God? Is this the judgment you're talking about? So this is clearly a, a political hot potato, and they want Jesus to comment on it. They want his take on this. And instead, and, and we see Jesus doing this over and over again, instead of addressing that issue that they put before him and, and saying, okay, here's what side I'm on, here's, here's what perspective is the right perspective, and, and creating more debate, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach. Verse 2, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now, that's kind of an easy question for them because they didn't have a very good opinion of Galileans. So some of them might have been thinking, well, those Galileans got what came to them, didn't they? So, so this is an easy one. And, and, and what Jesus says, do you think they're worse than all the other Galileans that weren't there? Do you think that, that they were sinners because they engaged in this activity and the other ones didn't? So it's a typical Jewish perspective that, that, that's going on here. And, and what they thought was if something bad happens to you, you must have done something wrong. I don't know that things have changed all that much, do you? I mean, we look at people and we see things going on and maybe sometimes deep down inside we say, well, you know, they shouldn't have been doing that. If they had reacted differently, maybe they wouldn't have had that problem. It's on them as much as it is the attackers. So Jesus' question here is rhetorical. doesn't expect an answer, and the answer is presumed, and just no. No, they are not worse sinners than the other Galileans. Did God judge them? And what Jesus is saying is, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking whether or not God judged them. What you should be asking, and the more crucial question is, did they repent? Now he makes this clear with the next verse. He says in verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says if you don't repent, you all will die in a similar manner. Now this is at the core of Jesus and his ministry. This is what he came for. It's not sinning that is the main issue, and we need to understand this. The main issue is not sinning. Why? Because we all sin. There are not grades. There are not, there are not degrees. That sinning is not the issue. It's not how you die that is the issue. It's not why you die. Everyone is going to die. The real issue is this. Have you repented? Have you repented? Have you settled with God before you die? Jesus wants to drive that point home, so he uses another current event. He said, you want to talk about current events? Okay, we'll do that. Verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? So now he says... Oh, you got a poor attitude about Galileans. Let's talk about Jews in Jerusalem who felt superior to the Galileans. So Siloam is, is also known as Shiloh. Okay? It's a reservoir where the south 
end of the walls around Jerusalem and the east end of the walls meet. It's down near Hezekiah's tunnel. So what, what, what Jesus is posing to them, okay, you know, now, now you talked about a human event here. Let's talk about something that might be a bit more natural. Was this an act of God? Was it God's judgment on the 18 who died? Were they worse offenders than anyone else? And Jesus chooses his words carefully here because he doesn't say were they worse sinners. He says were they worse offenders. And, and that word in the Greek has a connotation of a debt that's owed. So he's going back to his teaching from the previous passage. You see, the crowd wanted to measure the sin of the victims. They saw that there was a tragedy that fell on these victims and, and assumed that there must have been some shortcoming. They must have done something wrong. They must have had some failure. They were not as holy as they could be. They certainly weren't as righteous as they could be or they wouldn't have met such a bad end. The general tenor of the crowd here is that these people have come up short in some way. What the crowd is saying, by our measure, these people were somehow deficient. Hmm. So Jesus, once again, after he brings this up, turns away from the mode and the reason of death to the need to do business with God before death occurs. So he tells them again, no, I tell you, verse 5, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. They're the same words. He repeats himself. He said, you ask a question, I'll give you the answer. And then I'll pose another question to you, and I'll give you the answer to that. And the answers are the same. The point is this. All of them, everyone is going to die. There's some debate about who Jesus is talking about here. Some scholars think that he's talking to everybody standing in front of him and that that would have come true in 70 A.D. when Rome sacked Jerusalem. Some scholars think that he's talking about everyone in the world ever created, and that's kind of where I lean, uh, because the fact of the matter is, here we are on Sunday morning, the sun is shining and everything, and I'm standing up here telling you we're all going to die. But we are. We're going to die. And many of us want to gauge the behavior and life of others. Many feel some sort of satisfaction when we see these things happen to the others, when they get their due. Jesus says, no, that's not it. The most important thing is not how we measure up to each other, but how we stand before our Father in heaven. No measure devised by man matters at that moment when you and I stand before our Creator. And he asks the most important question that any of us will ever answer. What is your relationship with my son, Jesus Christ? We're all going to stand there. And God's not going to ask if we had good reputations or bad reputations. He's not going to ask if we ever did anything bad. And for that matter, he's not going to ask us if we ever did anything good. He doesn't have to ask us anything. He knows everything. But he's not concerned with whether or not we thought we deserved to die or if we thought life was fair. God is not interested in how we compare to each other. How we measure up in each other's eyes. He doesn't care. He's only interested in one thing. And that is God's measure. So we saw 
our measure, typical of us, not all of us have the same measure, I get it. But now we look at God's measure, starting in verse 6. And so Jesus tells this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So Jesus is using a short parable to illustrate his point here. And uh, the man planted a fig tree. He owned a field, probably prosperous. He's got somebody to take care of it. But the reason that the guy plants the fig tree is because he wants what? Figs. He wants figs. The purpose of the fig tree is to produce fruit. Now, in a vineyard, and you could read fruit garden here, the only reason the fig tree exists is to produce fruit. If it doesn't, it's just sitting there, soaking up resources, taking up room in the garden, using the soil, and failing to do what it's supposed to do. So this guy's fig tree is not producing fruit. And in verse 7, and he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Now, that's reasonable. It would take three years for the fig tree to begin to produce fruit. So uh, the owner has been waiting for the fruit to come, and now there's an expectation in the third year he expects to see these figs. And he says in the second half of verse 7, and I find none. There's no fruit. So there's an expectation of fruit, but there isn't any. So there's a consequence. The owner says, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? The tree's using up resources. The other trees could use. The owner's not impatient. He's not angry here. But the tree, the tree is of no use to him. It doesn't produce fruit. And the owner wants to cut it down. He's probably going to replace it with another tree. Verse 8. And so now we're talking about the vine dresser. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around and put it on manure. So those of you that are making images in your head of who this tree is, be careful. But the vine dresser intercedes here. He steps in. He wants it to give it another year. During that year, the vine dresser is going to work on it. He's going to, to do some neat stuff. He's going to dig around the tree. He's going to make sure it has nutrients. So let's give it one more year. Verse 9, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down, is what the vine dresser says. So the vine dresser is saying, maybe next year it'll bear some fruit. Now we can, we can make a lot of this imagery here. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've read several commentaries that that want to make lessons here that may or may not be taught. And we can read, I mean, you know, is Israel the fig tree? Uh, are the three years equal to the three years of ministry that Jesus spent on earth? Is the owner passing judgment on the tree? Is a vine dresser a mediator between the owner and the tree? Uh, we see the patience of the owner, the, the diligence of the vine dresser, the extra care and grace that the vine dresser is going to give this tree. Those are all Nice lessons. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And, and again, we've got to remember the context. Those things are interesting, but we should keep in mind that the context of this short parable is that Jesus can come back at any moment. 
And are you ready? The parable is about God's patience. Jesus is saying, you know, you measure things a little bit differently than God does. And God's looking at something differently than you do. So the parable is about God's patience waiting for his children to bear fruit. So the second measure, God's measure, is a contrast between that and the first measure, our measure. While most people don't measure themselves and others the the same way God does, they, they measure themselves and others by how they live and what they say and what they do, whether they appear to be good or bad or what nation they're from or Uh, what background they have, or maybe what color they are, and maybe today what their politics are. God measures us, all of us, by the fruit we produce. He's patient, and he gives us time, but sooner rather than later. And we need to understand that time is short. God intends for his church to produce fruit. So we've seen these two measures, ours, what we achieve, how we achieve it. Are we good or are we bad? Are we helping or are we hindering? Something bad happens to us, maybe that's God's judgment falling on us. Something good happens to us, that must be God's blessing. And and we go further than that, don't we? How big is our house? What color are we? I mean, the list just goes on. God's only measure is are we producing fruit? Fruit for the kingdom. So, if fruit is the measure, why repent? Why don't we, why don't we just go out and do a bunch of good stuff? And, and then when we stand before our creator... We can go, but look at all the fruit I produced. So this issue goes a little bit deeper. I wasn't always as patient with my children when they asked why over and over again as I could be. And I'm thankful that God is patient with us. Because he gives us the answer to why repent in the scriptures. All we need to do is read them carefully. So why repent? There are several reasons this morning, I'm going to share two of them with you. First one, let, let, me, let me define repentance. Uh, because it's easy to be sorrow so, over, over something that you've done. Sorry that you got caught. Okay, Repentance is not being sorry you got caught. Repentance is expressing a heartfelt, sincere remorse for your sins. It's a conscious turning away from a sinful life and turning toward Christ. Scripture says that we should love the Lord our God with all of our strength and all of our might. And it means that we love God more than we love our sin. That we grieve over our sin. Repentance, true repentance, eases our grief and restores us to a right relationship with him. It's not a one-time event. It's not one and we're done. It's a process. 
The first time is special. It is miraculous. God uses our repentance over our sin. God uses our confession over our sin to restore us to a right relationship with him. That's a supernatural miracle that happens. We are transformed. But for the rest of our lives, we are being transformed. It's a process. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will say that we sin after we're saved. Probably moments after we were saved, we sinned. Now, the truth of the matter is that regardless of what happens after we pray that prayer of contrition, after we pray that prayer of confession and ask that the Lord be Lord over our lives, that, that we're no longer suffer the eternal consequences of our sin. We're not going to burn in hell. But our daily sin can hinder our walk, so we repent daily. This is why Jesus says in in the, the, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us this day, forgive us our sins as we are forgiving of those around us. We're supposed to do that daily. So now we know what repentance is. Here's why we do it. The first reason. It's right there in the passage. He says it twice. The crowd wants to know about these bad people, that these bad things have happened to, these massacres, one by one man, another by natural means. Jesus doesn't answer him. What he says is, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says it twice to emphasize it. So the first reason that we should repent, and this should be enough for us, is that God says to. God tells us to. It's a commandment. And if we violate that commandment, we're doomed forever. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to be saved from the wrath of God other than to repent and recognize his son as Lord in our our lives. So God tells us to. So repentance is the key to eternity. Now, Jesus is not saying that if we repent, we will never physically die, not in the worldly sense. But he's telling everyone who will listen that their repentance will save them from a tragic, painful, burning, eternal death. No guarantee that repentance is going to deliver us from earthly suffering. But it will deliver us from eternal suffering. Our heartfelt, contrite repentance is the key to eternity with our Father in heaven. But watch this. It's not just the promise of heaven. Our repentance is also the key to producing fruit. When we repent, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins working in our hearts and working in our lives to draw us closer and closer to the Father, whispering in our ear those things we should do that allow us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So repentance is not just the key to eternity. It's the key to peace and happiness right here. We have to repent. When we do, the Holy Spirit enters and he equips us. He enables us to produce fruit. To produce fruit. So repentance is required. But only, only if you want to experience God's patience 
his benevolence, his favor, if you only you want to be nourished by him, if you only you want to have your heart tilled by him the same way that the vine dresser is going to till the soil around the tree, nourished by him the same way that the vine dresser is going to nourish, only if you want to bear fruit for him, only if you want to live with him forever. Repentance is required. Now, if you've repented, if you've said that prayer of contrition, praise God, you're on your way and guaranteed eternity with him. And you're already producing fruit for the kingdom. Listen to me carefully. Because we have that tendency to look back and measure ourselves by each other. Well, I don't evangelize. I don't go out on a street corner. I'm not knocking on my neighbor's doors. I'm producing no fruit. If you've repented, there's fruit coming through you, brothers and sisters. Now, maybe you don't recognize it. It's okay. God sees it. He's put us together as a body so that we could do this together. We're not all going to do the same thing. Somebody say amen. I hope somebody at home said amen too. We're not, let, let me just say that one more time. We're not all going to do the same thing. God has given, thank you. God has given each of us a gift to bring to his body so that the body working together can produce fruit. The only measure God has. Now, if you haven't, if you haven't said that prayer, know this. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back soon. And if you don't repent before he comes back, it will be too late. And that's going to be painful. But it's not going to be temporarily painful like the pain we suffer here. It will be eternally painful. It's why repentance is required. Let's pray. Who am I, Lord, that I should ask of you anything? But it would be the end of me to rebel and to refuse those things that you ask me to do. So, Lord, you, you offer mercy. You bid me to come to you. You bid all of us to come to you. And it would be the end of me to ignore that. So today I bow before you, Father. I surrender my soul to you. I give myself wholly to you, my King and my Savior. You, Father, will be my portion. And I will find my rest in you. And I will trust you. I will strive to make you my all in all. But I ask you to help me, Lord, because I'm weak. Lord, I pray that you might be my strength. Help me to stand firm when tempted. Grant me the repentance your word speaks of. And enable me and all our brothers and sisters to bear fruit for your kingdom. And we pray this in the precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. Thank you for tuning in today. We'll see you next week. Pastor John here again to tell you that we really appreciate your spending some time with us. Love to hear from you. You can email me personally with your prayer requests or comments at kavakas, K-U-V-A-K-A-S, at gmail.com. You can find us on YouTube at WBFVA. We're also on Facebook at Morton Bible Fellowship. And we have a worldwide web site as well, WBFVA.org. I hope today blessed you. I hope you have a blessed week. God bless you. We hope to see you again.